We turn again this morning to Jonah chapter 1. Last time we heard specifically from the words of verses 1 through 3, and this time our focus will be on verses 4 through 16 of chapter 1. But just to be reminded of the context, we'll begin reading at verse 1 and read the whole chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there is a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Francis Thompson was born in 1859 in northwest England. He always felt that he was to be a writer, but his parents insisted that he go to medical school. After failing medical school, he went to London to pursue his dream 
but soon became a homeless drug addict. He still managed to write a few poems, and soon the editors of a local periodical, who happened to be Christians, took notice of his talents. They gave him a home, and the Lord used them to draw Francis to himself. In response, Francis Thompson wrote what some call the greatest ode in the English language, entitled it, The Hound of Heaven. It starts this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways, out of my mind and in the mist of tears. It goes on to describe God as footsteps that kept following him no matter where he went. And after describing all the ways that he sought pleasure apart from God, Francis ends the poem with the realization that the gloom he felt was actually the shade of God's hand that was outstretched, beckoning him to rise, clasp my hand, and come. Just as he pursued Francis Thompson, the hound of heaven pursues Jonah in our text. Last time, we heard how God had a plan for Jonah and ordered him to be a missionary to the nations. But as we all know, Jonah wanted nothing to do with sharing God's mercy with the city of Nineveh. But God doesn't let Jonah off the hook. In our text today, we see that the sovereign Lord relentlessly pursues his fleeing missionary. We'll see how this is revealed in three ways. First, through the restraining storm. Second, by the accidental sermon. And third, through the converted sailors. So let's dive right in and see how verses 4 through 6 show God pursuing his servant through the restraining storm. It should come as no surprise how our text starts off this morning. But the Lord. This is another reminder for us that God is still in the driver's seat. God is not surprised by Jonah's disobedience and frantically reacting, trying to save face. No, God willed all of this to happen and had it recorded in Scripture to be a mirror for the Jews to see a reflection of themselves. Whereas in verse 1, the Lord was calling Jonah, here in verse 4, he is hurling a great storm upon Jonah to restrain his escape. The first thing we need to see is that this is not a regular storm. Now it's true that there are often storms in the Mediterranean Sea. Just think about Paul being shipwrecked on his way to Rome. But the strong storms are quite seasonal. And it is highly unlikely that the sailors Jonah is with would have put off from land during the stormy season. So this tempest during the sailing season clues everybody in on the divine hand at play. Now it would be easy to assume that this divine tempest is flowing out of God's anger against Jonah's sin. On one hand, that's correct. There is a level of judgment to it, but it's an oversimplified view of what's going on here. Knowing that God has called Jonah to the mission field in Nineveh, is there not a measure of mercy in this storm? By not letting Jonah run away from God, he is restraining Jonah temporarily so he can draw him back to himself. How often do we experience the same thing? How often does God lead us back to himself through the consequences of our sins? Is that not the point of discipline that parents give to their children? Parents, when your kids disobey and stand in need of correction, 
I hope you're not missing the opportunity to point your children to Christ. Discipline that is disconnected from Christ ends up being only punishment for wrong. And if a child is only ever punished that way, all they learn is which behaviors to avoid. The discipline of Christian parents is modeled after what God is doing with Jonah. Sure, there's a consequence, a storm, but it's being used to draw the disobedient one back to God and his will for our lives. In verse 5, we get introduced to the sailors. We know that in the days of Solomon, some of his servants sailed with the Phoenicians in search of gold, but overall, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. Since we are not told otherwise, it's safe to assume that these are all pagan Gentiles on the boat with Jonah. And without radar and a 10-day forecast having warned them of this oncoming storm, this unseasonable tempest has them terrified. They are so afraid of the storm that has been hurled on them that they respond in like, hurling all their cargo overboard. And as they are throwing their very livelihood into the raging sea, They're also calling out to their gods. The little word each in our text gives the impression that these sailors are all crying out to different gods, which means they all have different religious backgrounds. And in a way, they are representative of the nations. See what God has done here? Jonah disobeyed the command to go to Nineveh, but God still has him right where he wants him. Jonah is in the midst of the nations even when he is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Notice how the merciful discipline that Jonah is receiving does not affect just him. In fact, while he's sleeping and oblivious to his perilous state, it's the sailors who are taking the brunt of the storm. But they realize that what they have done so far is not enough. Their lives are still in grave danger. And going back to how Jonah is a picture of Israel, is this not the same with Israel and the nations around them? God desired the nations to know him and serve him through the witness of Israel. But God's covenant people disobeyed and abandoned their mission. And now, because the covenant people were living pagan lives, the salvation of the nations is at risk. If the only person on board the boat who knows the one who hurled the storm at them remains sleeping, will anybody on the boat survive? Similarly, if Israel and Judah completely apostatize and forget God, will there be any hope of anybody being saved in the future? Humanly speaking, the answer is no. But we're not dealing with just humans, are we? God will not let his desire for the nations be thwarted, so he intervenes. God uses the pagan nations to rouse his covenant people from their spiritual slumber, just as he uses the captain of the ship to rouse Jonah. Look, at me, look with me at the words of the captain in verse 6. Just as Jonah received the word of the Lord, saying, Arise and call out against Nineveh, Now the captain says, Arise, call out to your God. Will Jonah obey this time? Similar to how he responded in verse 3, he rises, all right, but he does not call out to the God of Israel. Why would he not join the sailors in praying to his God for deliverance from this storm? I think that answer can be found by asking, 
of it of ourselves. When you and I know that we're living in sin and disobeying God, do we feel like praying to him or do we try to avoid him? If you're not sure you're ready to repent of a sin, do you feel like it would be easier to ignore God than to ask him for other things in your life? Sure, we might be able to go through the motions of a prayer, but we know deep in our hearts that it's not a prayer of faith. But as we'll see in our next point, although Jonah refuses to pray, he does end up preaching an accidental sermon. Since their attempts to save the ship have proven futile, the sailors decide to cast the lot so they can determine who brought this divine tempest upon them. And as no surprise to us, the lot fell on Jonah, and all the eyes of the sailors turned to him. Look with me at the questions they ask of Jonah in verse 8. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? First of all, they want to verify that he truly is the guilty party, but they also want to know about him. Their first question uses the same word evil that we talked about last time from verse 2. It could have been translated as, tell us on whose account this disaster has come upon us. That would make perfect sense. But the word evil reminds us that the sailors know this is a divine storm. They know that a God is angry because of something that one of them did. Now look at the rest of the questions they ask in verse 8. They're questions of identity. In some ways, they're the same questions that many of you asked me last summer. Where are you from, and what did you do for a living? Their last two questions, what is your country, and of what people are you, appear to be additional questions of location. But together, they actually get at the question of religion. What God do you serve? Jonah's response to these questions is very intriguing because he's selective about which ones he answers. He completely skips the question about his occupation and goes right to his ethnicity. Are we surprised about this? We shouldn't be. Jonah makes no mention of his role as a prophet because he doesn't want to be a prophet. He knows that if he admits to being God's mouthpiece, then he has a mission to fulfill. Jonah boarded this ship in the first place in hopes that God would give his role as a prophet to the nations to someone else. But what Jonah does tell the sailors is also significant. He's happy to mention that he's a Hebrew, a member of God's chosen people. This brings us back to what we talked about last time as well. Jonah is proud of his membership in God's chosen people. But he's not about to extend God's mercy to a foreign nation by being a prophet. Jonah's selectivity in his identity is telling in more ways than one. But his answer to the question about his religious religion is the most interesting. The end of verse 10 reveals that Jonah had earlier told the sailors he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And now he adds, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What more evidence do the sailors need? Even though he was trying to boast about his religious pedigree, the sailors understand that this is his confession to being the guilty party, the one on whose account this great storm has come upon them. It seems quite obvious that Jonah is putting on a false front, 
hoping in vain that nobody notices the sin in his life. How many of us have done or are doing the same thing right now? Are you secretly living a life of sin, but keep coming to church so that people will keep assuming that you're a Christian? Are you afraid that if people pried into your life too much, they might find out how little you have regard for God's commandments? Don't take this the wrong way. I am not saying that if you sinned in the past week, you shouldn't be here. Oh no, not that at all. If the remaining sin in your life grieves you, then praise the Lord that you can come into his house to hear about the forgiveness you have in Christ Jesus. But if you know of a sin in your life that you're not quite willing to let go of because it brings you earthly pleasure, then God calls you to repent of that sin and flee to him for forgiveness and grace. Now, young people, I want you especially to hear this. There's no sin that you can hide from God. That statement may sound unsettling, but it should actually bring us much comfort. How can that be? It's because the God who knows all our sins has also provided his Son, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for our sins. You don't hide all your sins from God because he has promised to pardon all of your guilt. In fact, God is faithful to forgive our sins when we confess them and look to Christ in faith. So let us take comfort in the God whom we can never hide from. Notice what God has done here with Jonah and the sailors. Jonah fled to avoid witnessing to the nations, but God has led him to do just that. God sent the storm to stop Jonah in his tracks and force him to be a missionary to the nations. The response of the sailors to Jonah's confession shows how God can use such simple words to stir the hearts of men. There is no way for Jonah to not do God's will for his life, which we will see more clearly by converted sailors. Now that they know who Jonah is running from, the sailors ask Jonah what should be done to him. We should hear a sense of urgency in this question, because even though they tossed the cargo overboard, identified who caused the storm, and heard Jonah's confession, the storm is still growing stronger and more tempestuous. It's obvious to the sailors that something more has to be done to end this storm. So they ask the only one who knows the God who made the sea and dry land what they should do. And how does Jonah respond? Well, how should have he responded? Shouldn't he recognize that God will not give up on pursuing him and repent of his foolish escapade? Shouldn't he say, Lord, I have sinned by trying to flee from your presence. Have mercy upon me, and I will do what you have commanded me to do. That's what he should have said. But that's obviously not what he said, is it? No, instead of repenting from his own evil, Jonah doubles down on his attempt to escape from God. As we see in verse 12, Jonah is so committed to not being a prophet to Nineveh that he chooses death rather than submission to the Lord. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, he says. So do the sailors follow through with Jonah's orders? Eventually they do, but not immediately. Note that the sailors are scared to follow through with Jonah's orders. If the God of Israel can send such a violent storm after someone trying to flee from him, 
What will he do to them if they shed innocent blood? By this, the sailors show that they have more fear of the Lord than Jonah. They are more concerned about not shedding one man's blood than Jonah is concerned about an entire city of God's image bearers. But when the sailors eventually do toss him overboard, the sea calms down immediately, confirming that Jonah was indeed the guilty party. Here we see another picture of how Jonah represents the Israelites. Just as Jonah was tossed overboard by the sailors to appease God's wrath, so too Judah was taken into captivity and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Gentiles to appease God's anger toward his people. Just as the sea ceased from raging when Jonah was thrown overboard, so too the land of Canaan had rest from the sins of Israel and Judah once they were cast out of the land. But don't forget the ultimate purpose of Jonah and Israel being hurled into seeming death. God's purpose was not just to get rid of, to rid the earth of sinful prophets or for the creation to have rest from the storms of sin. No, God's purpose in all of this was to pursue his chosen people. It's not part of our text this time, but we all know that being tossed overboard is not the end of Jonah. God still had a mission for him to fulfill, so he pursued him and preserved him even in the depths of the sea. The same can be said for the people of Judah. Their exile was not the end of them, but a time of God pursuing them. Pursuing them through discipline, yes, but still pursuing them. It's easy to see God's storming power in this text and think, wow, our God is frightening and intimidating. But when you think that, congregation, I urge you to look deeper and see that God's power should make us fear him, not with fright, but with because his power is a pursuing power. Our God is sovereign and will stop at nothing to pursue his chosen people, whether that be Jonah, the Israelites, or us. Remember, if we belong to Christ, then there is nothing that can separate us from his love. And sometimes it's the storms in our lives that keep us close to him. In verse 16, we get one last glimpse of the sailors. What did they make of this whole ordeal? Well, as the text says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Some may say that these are just foxhole prayers and sacrifices, short-lived confessions made out of desperation. But if that were the case, wouldn't they have done this while the storm was still raging? This could be labeled as a false conversion if it had happened just after Jonah's confession while the storm was still threatening to destroy them. But that's not what we're presented with. After being confronted with the reality that Jonah's God has power over the wind and the waves, after the threat to their lives is over, only then do the sailors turn to the Lord in fear. But after throwing the cargo overboard, what did they have left to sacrifice? This last phrase should be seen as a postscript of sorts, giving us some details about what the sailors did long afterwards. Once their feet were back on dry land, they made a point of worshiping the Lord. Worshiping the Lord of the sea and the dry land by offering sacrifices to him and vowing to serve him. 
What a clear that God's will always comes to pass. Even in his rebellion, Jonah accomplishes the calling that God gave him. The nations are beginning to worship the Lord. Of course, he has more to do. He still needs to go to Nineveh. But he is still a prophet of the Lord, whether he wants to be or not. You may be wondering if it's appropriate to end this text after verse 16. How can we just leave Jonah drowning in the sea? Well, I'll tell you that stopping here is done purposefully because it leaves Jonah in the same situation that Nineveh and the nations are in. In his current state, Jonah is completely dependent upon the the compassion of the Lord. The mercy of God that Jonah at first found so offensive ends up being his only hope. Unless God acts miraculously, Jonah will drown. But Jonah isn't the only one who needs the Lord's mercy. Don't forget that the book of Jonah was also written as a mirror for us. God has called us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But just like Jonah, we fail miserably to live out that commission. Just as Jonah rightfully deserved to be thrown into the sea, so too we deserve to be cast into the lake of fire for our sins. And just as Jonah's only hope of rescue was God's divine provision, so too our only hope is that God pursue us and intervene before we die. God's pursuit of Jonah and of us is a pursuit of love. Christ endured immense suffering, shedding his own blood on the cursed cross to pursue his church of all ages. Our Lord and Savior was willing to bear God's eternal wrath because he loved you and he loved me more than we can fully comprehend. And our Lord and Savior calls us to reflect his pursuing spirit by witnessing to the nations. It should be our joy and delight to tell our neighbors, both near and far, about God's love that will stop at nothing to claim his children. Dear people of God, this relentless pursuit by God should be a great source of comfort to you. Rest in the fact that despite your many sins and shortcomings, Jesus Christ pursued you all the way to the cross. If he was willing to go that far for you, we have no reason to doubt that he will draw us back to himself when we wander from his calling. And if you find yourself on the run from God, trying to find fulfillment in the vain pleasures of this world, I urge you to submit to the hound of heaven. He is ever pursuing you, and if you submit to him, you will find not wrath, but rest for your souls. Praise be to God that he does not leave us in our sins, but pursues us so that we can dwell with him forever in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Our sovereign Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a pursuing God. Lord, no matter who your people are, whether it's Jonah, the Israelites, or us, we rest in the fact that we can never run away from you. Lord, although it sometimes seems frightening to think that you can send storms, violent storms, in order to, to catch us and keep us from escaping, 
Lord, help us to find comfort in that. May we find peace knowing that if we are your children, the children that you promise that we are, that there is nothing we can do to escape from your hand. Lord, thank you for showing this through Jonah. Thank you that you pursued him even in the storm of the sea. And Lord, we we acknowledge that just like Jonah is in the need of your mercy to rescue him from the depths of the sea, so too we stand in need of the mercy of the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, give us hearts and spirits that embrace your pursuing nature, and may we tell all those around us that our God is the God who pursues his children and wants them to be in fellowship with, with God. But this all we ask in Jesus' name, amen.